Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Every night this week, we've reported on a young person in America getting shot after making an innocent mistake, ringing the wrong doorbell, pulling into the wrong driveway, and now opening the wrong car door. Two teenage cheerleaders in Texas shot in a grocery store parking lot after they mistook the suspect's car for their own. On Saturday in upstate New York, 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis was shot to death in a friend's car that pulled into the wrong driveway. Her grieving father explains what he hopes happens to the shooter. Angers me so badly. And I, I just hope to God that he dies in jail. Tonight, we're going to talk about one city that has managed to cut gun violence in half, and we'll find out how they did it. Plus, the Supreme Court is considering the case of a mail carrier, an evangelical Christian, who says his faith does not allow him to work on Sundays. Can he be forced to? And a few hours ago, I sat down with a group of dedicated Fox viewers to see what they think of the $787 million settlement that Fox had to pay for spreading misinformation about Dominion voting systems. A show of hands, how many of you are surprised by the $787 million settlement that Fox agreed to pay to Dominion for broadcasting false information about the voting systems? None of you. Okay, we'll get to that, but we do start with yet another story of two teenage cheerleaders who made the innocent mistake of walking up to the wrong car in a parking lot thinking it was theirs, as we all have at some point. But for that common misunderstanding, they got shot. I want to bring in my panel. LZ Granderson from the Los Angeles Times, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, former White House Communications Director, our law enforcement analyst, John Miller, and Jessica Washington from The Root. Great to see all of you. Um, John, this is the third night in a row that we have reported on an innocent mistake like this, getting someone shot. What is going on in this country? Clearly, there's some confusion here. And I mean, I don't know how we got here. The question is, you know, the drumbeat of stories about crime going up, uh, you know, all that goes on, and that equals fear. And then there's this weird calculus that, you know, gun ownership means being able to prevail over fear. And then there's this even stranger and darker calculus, which is, well, if I use my gun out of fear, then I am therefore justified. And it is becoming harder and harder to explain these incidents away, um, except for kind of looking at this phenomenon, because we have three kinds of weird gun violence. We have our regular crime guns, criminals using guns to commit crime. We can talk about that. I know my way around that one, one pretty well. We have the active shooter sphere, which is the mass murder thing. That's disconnected from crime. Those people don't expect to get away and often expect to die. But now we're seeing this strange middle ground of random shootings 
that are not accidental, that are on purpose by people who would be otherwise considered rational, making irrational decisions because they have the power of this gun. I don't know where we're going here. I'm so glad that you put it into those three buckets because I do think they're distinct. They are. And so, so Jessica, it's like, I don't know if everybody's on a hair trigger right now. I don't know if the people who are on a hair trigger who are most scared have access to guns. I don't, in, like John, I too am just looking for answers of what is going on that people in a split second before any questions are asked are shooting. Yeah, I think it's terrifying, this idea that a mistake that we all make all of the time, you know, going up to the wrong door, you know, I think recently there was another incident of someone, you know, having to turn around in the wrong driveway, things that are just so benign. I think what's happening is we have this, it's, we, it is about, you know, having gun, access to guns, but it's this culture of we need guns to protect ourselves, that this is something important. I think this has been pushed, you know, politically, culturally in the United States for a long time, this idea of, well, you have to have this weapon in order to protect yourself, you know, in this country, it's so important that you have a gun in order to protect yourself against intruders. And I think then people see, you know, this messaging time and time again, and then they act on it in these really kind of bizarre circumstances. Alyssa, I do think there's a connection to fear mongering. I do think that there's some fear mongering going on and that there's a feeling of we're under assault or the others are coming in and all of that does heighten this hair trigger. Well, it certainly does, because in nearly all of these cases, it's somebody with a gun not even asking a question, just shooting before and then asking questions after. And that's horrifying. That's not ever what should happen. Having, you know, the right to self-defense means there has to be some kind of active aggression for you to defend, not someone pulling into your driveway. I honestly think that this is the logical conclusion of of what we've seen of fear-mongering in our country. I think there's an element of our adversaries having pit us against one another for the last decade, whether it's over social media, whether it's through technology— you Meaning know, foreign adversaries? So I, believe, I think there's an element of for foreign nexus in the sense that we look at neighbors as our enemies in a way that we didn't before. People don't have that same sort of community orientation that even 20 years ago we would have had. You used to go to your neighbor's house to borrow some sugar, and now you're not going to knock on their door because they might pull out a weapon. You also can't eliminate the guns from the conversation. I believe fundamentally in legal gun ownership, but if you're somebody who's going to shoot before even asking questions if your door is knocked on, there should be a question about if you should be owning a gun then. LZ, what do you think is going on? I just think we're just seeing more of what's always gone on, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I've been a reporter, small town newspapers, big newspapers. There have been tons of these stories that my newspapers that I've worked that have had to cover, accidental shootings, mistaken identities, things of this nature. It's just because of 24-hour news, media, and social media, we're just seeing more of it. But just pulling into the wrong driveway, I mean, I agree, there's always been shootings, but pulling into the wrong driveway and somebody shooting at you while you're on your way out in a, a mall parking lot, a supermarket parking lot, going up to the wrong car and getting shot, that, I don't know, doesn't that feel a little different? It feels as if it's more of just craziness that's always occurred. I mean, I remember covering a story on Father's Day, and it's a story that shook me to my core. But basically, it was this dad had dropped his family off on Father's Day. The mom realized she forgot something and asked the dad to go to the store and get it. He ends up accidentally hitting one of his children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, oh, but you found out later he was drinking, and that may have been a part of it. And it's like going, well, what's going on? Everyone's drinking and driving. It's like going, well, let's calm down a little bit. So when I think about these particular incidents, they're very different. We don't even know why the 25-year-old suspect 
you know, who's who's supposedly shot at the at the cheerleaders. We don't know what triggered him. We don't know if he was afraid for his life because I haven't seen the reporting yet. We don't know if he was expecting someone else. It was late at night. So before we start heaping these things all together, I think it is important that we wait for the details of everything. But overall, I don't think it's more or less. I think it is the awareness that's increased. I, so, I mean, the empirical data... You know, in New York in 1992, 93, we had 5,000 shootings a year. Um, in 2017, we had under 1,000. You know, that number is, is, is lower today, um, even though it's gone up a slight bit uh, because of some crime conditions in New York. So we're not where we were before. But, and maybe Elsie's right. Maybe this is the effect of social media rapidly moving information that then spills into mainstream media and magnifies. But there is something going wrong when you go from a Nashville to a Louisville to a, you know, from a Uvalde, from a Newtown. When this becomes a problem for us on the news desk to decide what used to be a very big story is something we'll even cover because these things have become too common, um, we really have to step back and say, who are we? Yeah. And I mean, every night here we search for answers about gun violence. And if only there were some mythical American city that had figured out how to bring down gun violence. Well, it turns out there is, and it's not a myth, it's real. Omaha, Nebraska has cut gun violence in half over the past 15 years. So joining me now is Omaha Police Chief Todd Schmurter and Willie Barney, the founder and president of the Empowerment Network. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Um, Chief, how did you do it? Well, I'll tell you what, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's been a long haul for us. We're happy with our numbers. Really, in just a high-level view, we plugged in with the community. The community and the police department, we have the same goals, we have the same mission, and we do the same three things, enforcement, intervention, and prevention. When we're working one of those three areas, the community knows about it, and it's, it's really a teamwork effect, and it's, it's been great for Omaha. So let me just share some numbers with folks so they know the the scale of what we're talking about. In 2009, Omaha had 246 victims of gun violence. Last year, that number was cut in half to 120. In 2008, you had 44 homicides. Last year, that number was down to 29. The lowest, I know it's bounced around in the past you know, few years. The lowest was in 2018, and it was 22. So I know that also you talk about the Empowerment Network. Tell us what that is, Willie, and how other cities could even use that. Yes, thank you. It's a comprehensive collaborative approach, bringing community sectors together and working in an aligned way to develop strategy, first of all, identify issues, but develop strategies that can be implemented. So that's from the police department, neighborhoods, community-based groups, uh, faith community, uh, schools, all of them identifying what their strengths are and then aligning that work on a consistent basis. So the Empowerment Network also works on root causes. We know that Violence is a symptom, and so we need to go upstream and address employment, housing, um, education development, housing development, revitalization. So the Empowerment Network is a uh, tool and a facilitator of that type of process. So, Chief, I mean, what I hear Willie and you saying is that it's multi-pronged. So you have to deal with education, employment, as Willie just said, housing and violence protection. Obviously, Omaha is not as big as New York City or Philadelphia or other places. Can that be used in bigger cities? So I, I feel it can. I mean, Omaha is a half a million population. And when you when you see our trend lines go down, 
I do think this program that we have in working with 360 is replicatable. It's definitely the mid-sized cities and major cities all across the country. And I think as you piece by piece it through each of the, the bureaus, it can be replicated by Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles. Um, Chief, we were just talking about these shootings for the past three nights. We've reported on these shootings of young people, teenagers, you know, young Americans who made an innocent mistake of ringing the wrong doorbell or pulling into the wrong driveway. What do you think is at the root of that? Yeah, you know, it's something I'm looking at pretty closely because we've had a really bad run here. You know, our, our, our neighbor major city, Kansas City, had had a similar incident occur recently here. So it's concerning to me. And I, I heard one of your panelists earlier break it down into three areas. You have your mass shooters, you have your run of your general gun violence, and you have this new phenomenon. And in this new phenomenon, it's something's going on. It's either um, it's either a great media blitz and, and how quickly things surface, or we have a perception issue going on in this country that we definitely need to get a hold of. Um, Willie, I was understanding, I was re- doing a little bit of research on what has happened in Omaha, and I understand that every Wednesday you all hold a public forum with the community. How can the community yes. help? I mean, what do you task the community members with doing to bring down gun violence? And that's really been the secret uh, that each individual, each organization identifies what their strengths are. So yes, we meet every single Wednesday from two to three. It's a very a strategic meeting, but it's also tactical. Uh, what's happened the last seven days? What are the things that can be any type of retaliation, any type of issue that might surface that we can respond to, but also looking forward in the next seven days, what's coming up at a football game, uh, something going on in the neighborhood, working with the police department. And I do want to emphasize that we've identified specifically what each organization, what each individual from the grassroots gang intervention person to the neighborhood, to the church, community-based agencies, how, what role they can play and then making sure that we're aligned and continue to move forward on that. That's been the strength of Omaha 360 and the partnership with the police department. Gentlemen, thank you. It's really um, heartening to know that it can work somewhere. And I hope that other cities are reaching out to you for what the secret sauce is and how they can implement it here. Really appreciate talking to you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so what I hear them saying, Jessica, is that they are proactive in that community meeting. They look forward to the next seven to 10 days and go, okay, what's coming up? What do we need to have our eyes on? That's interesting. And then what they were saying is they look at education, employment, housing, and violence prevention because they know it all has to work in tandem. But I am, I am skeptical that it can be scaled up to the level of New York or Philadelphia just because it sounds like they are able to get their arms around it in, in a really great way there. Yeah, I mean, I think what you have to think about is individual communities within New York City. I tell people calling New York City one city almost feels slightly unfair. It is massive. I'm from a much, I'm from DC, which is much smaller. You know, you can walk across it. Here, that's not happening. But you could potentially look at this within communities. And what I really love about this is it's engaging communities as opposed to feeling like police are this occupying force with a I think a lot of communities in the United States do feel they're now working together as letting the community have agency in creating safety. And the thing is, it's worked, which is the really incredible part. Yeah, what did you think about what you heard? Um, I don't think they've reinvented the wheel. I think they've invented a good wheel. Um, You know, we reduced crime by 80% in New York. We brought shootings down from 5,000 to 800, you know, over a period of time. And now it's hovering around 1,000 again. But that's a dramatic decrease. When we saw the spike in shootings that occurred in 2020 in many cities, what the NYPD did was 
infused a lot of cops into the neighborhoods where the shootings were spiking, but they also infused a lot of programs, summer jobs, rebuilding broken basketball courts and recreation areas, getting people into indoor events, trying to provide alternatives for young people, because it was kids shooting at kids, um, to be other places, to do other things, and to be engaged. And that had a good effect, but it can't be a momentary thing. Um, we tend to lurch from crisis to crisis and then let that ebb. Uh, we need to keep building on that, and, and that's important. Yeah, Alyssa, we have to go, but because you were at the White House, I just want to know what resonated with you and if you think that nationally we can tackle some of this. I think this is a really a smart approach to deal with gun violence generally, um, especially going back to like youth who may fall into the wrong circles and giving them alternatives and making them feel like they're built into the communities and don't need to fear the police. The police are working alongside them. Not sure this answers the press the question we're trying to figure out about these random shootings. That's something I think we have to look at further. Yeah, agreed. Okay, LZ, I'll get you next time. Um, (laughs) Next, (laughs) you're up next. Uh, Remember how Florida would not allow any teaching on gender or sexuality from kindergarten through third grade. Okay, well, they've just extended that ban through 12th grade. What will that mean for families and students? We discuss with my panel and LZ next. That's right. Only when it's quiet. (laughs) Students in Florida schools in grades kindergarten through 12 can no longer be taught about sexual orientation and gender identity. The so-called don't say gay law was originally just for students from pre-K to third, but now it's been extended through high school after a vote today from Florida's state education board. The rule does make an exception for health and reproductive courses. Teachers who violate the new state policy could be suspended or have their teaching licenses revoked. I'm back with my panel. LZ, as promised, I'm coming to you. <laughs> First of all, when do you get instruction on sexuality outside of your sex ed class in high school? First of all, I mean, it's only in sex ed class, so I'm not sure what problem this is solving. First of all, however, I do think that what we've heard from teachers and parents alike is that it's so vague, it has a chilling effect mm-hmm. on teachers and they no longer know what questions they can answer. And that's the design, right? To keep it vague so that you can scare people into not talking about it. This isn't necessarily about persecuting queer people. This is about silencing us, making people afraid to talk about us, making people afraid to teach about our history. You know, Governor DeSantis, when he first got into office, actually visited Pulse after the shooting and talked about how he was going to be there for the queer community. And check the timeline. As soon as President Trump became vulnerable DeSantis switched, and he got very anti-queer because he knew this was an avenue that could help raise my profile nationally. I'm not making this up on the man. He went to Pulse. The quotes are all there in the newspaper. And when Donald Trump got in trouble, and it started with the investigation with the first uh, impeachment, you started noticing a shift, not only in his rhetoric, but also in the policies that he was pushing, not only when it came to a CRT or the, the 6019 project, but particularly when it came to queer people. He went after us, and he's going after our kids, which is even a greater sign that he's nothing more than a bully, just like the predecessor in the White House. So I have a frustration, and I would just, I would, I would say to my party, the Republican Party, 
I think that some of our elected officials are misreading the cultural moment right now by leaning so heavily into anti-LGBTQ policies. Eight in 10 Americans believe in more protections to protect the LGBTQ community from discrimination. 67% of Republicans support more support to prevent discrimination. So this very, very heavy anti-LGBTQ sort of rhetoric, but also policies that you're seeing, I think is completely misreading the moment. I'd also note Gen Z and millennials will be the biggest voting bloc in the next election in 2024. You lose my generation on down. We are the generation of marriage equality. We're not going backward, whether you're right, left or center. I am. I think you are spot on on the shift with DeSantis because he did not start as a culture warrior on these issues. This is why I implore him and my friends on his campaign, do some national interviews. Come sit down on CNN and explain why you think this is good policy because it leaves so many open questions about how you even talk about basic things like what your family unit looks like in the classroom. Yeah, Jessica, that leads us to you and your generation. I'm so confused by this because are you allowed to go to your guidance counselor? Can you go to your guidance counselor if you have any issue with sex or sexuality or gender, I don't know anymore. That's what makes it so incredibly unclear and so terrifying. I mean, for teachers who, you know, just existing in your gender identity, existing as a queer person, now all of a sudden it's unclear if you, you know, can talk about that, if you could be, go be arrested under this law, you know, what could happen to you? I think that's terrifying. I feel really bad for I mean, these students. I are not students. talking about being arrested. Not arrested, talking sorry. about being suspended. Being suspended, from yes. your job. Yes, no, thank you for clarifying yeah. that. No, 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 sorry not for yet. being, no, at this point. Let's hope not, uh, for being suspended from your job. And that's terrifying. I mean, these are people who are relying on these paychecks. And then you also have to think about the kids. I mean, if the, these are children who it is already difficult enough to grow up as a queer child in the United States and to not know if uh, there are adults you can talk to, to not know if there are other queer adults that you could come to, and then to have it, you know, no one could be open about this with you. That's what's really scary. It's going to hurt these teachers, but it's really going to hurt these kids when they have no one to look towards. What's your interpretation, John? I think if you look at the choices between organized education in an academic setting, uh, which, you know, they've now extended to grade 12 um, as a ban, versus what, <laughs> I mean, I was a kid before high school and during high school, you know, to get your education on sex education, gender, everything else from what your friends know and think, uh, where are you going to get a more balanced or accurate picture? But I mean... To circle back to our earlier section on guns, what's crazier? I mean, drag queen story hours going on in libraries across the country to introduce children to different gender identities. Uh, people say, well, that's going to frighten them, and there's pedophiles, and you know, this is frightening. So they, they then surround the library with a bunch of guys in military fatigues with AR-15s, which is frightening children. Um, you know, again, we've gone from rational to completely irrational. I would, I would say that the story time isn't just to introduce kids to different representations or the way to present yourself. It's also just to entertain them to read a book. Drag is entertaining. Drag is fun. And it always has been. So I don't think it's about trying to introduce or teach kids that you can be anything you want to be. Sure, that's a byproduct. But drag queens are funny. Well, and at the end of the day, the parent has the right to bring their child or to choose not to. It doesn't need to be regulated by the state. Yes, also in this new new Florida <laughs> or, law. Or by some militia that Correct. shows Correct. Even that more so, yeah. Yes, and, and one more thing that I didn't add is that in this new Florida law by the Florida State Board of Education, the parents can opt out of sex ed. So the one place where you're being taught, <laughs> you, wrong? <laughs> yes, you know, facts um, about health and sex ed, your parents can sign you out of. So... 
to John's point, I don't know if your friends are the best teachers for all of this. I learned a lot from mine. (laughs) (laughs) I learned everything I know from Saturday Night Fever and Greece. (laughs) Thank you very much, friends. All right. So how far should the government go in accommodating religious beliefs of employees? One postal service worker is putting that to the test by asking not to work on Sundays. Now his case is headed to the Supreme Court. We take that up next. The Supreme Court has temporarily extended access to that abortion drug until midnight on Friday. After that, a lower court ruling could impose serious restrictions on access to that abortion drug, mifepristone. We'll discuss that with our reporters in the next hour. But there's another important case in front of the Supreme Court right now. The justices hearing oral arguments in a religious freedom case involving a former mail carrier who says the U.S. Postal Service denied his request to not work on Sundays in observance of his evangelical Christian faith. My panel is back along with CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, we're all fascinated by this because none of us want to work on Sundays. And, um, Some of us do, though. Okay, yes, and you do. And so um, can any employer force you to work on a Sunday? So Justice Jackson, who is our newest justice, has been sort of quiet because usually the most junior justice knows their place and, and stays quiet. She said it best with two words during the oral argument yesterday. It depends. Not very helpful, it may seem, but she nailed it. Because so much of the law is just, you have to take a reasonable approach to all the factors. And this is an age-old tension in the law. On the one hand, we respect the free exercise of religion. But the tension is we don't want to place an undue burden on our government. And so the legal test that has developed over the years is what we call a de minimis standard, meaning if a person's religion can be accommodated without cost or inconvenience, without substantial cost or inconvenience, then it's okay. A classic example, if someone needs to wear a head covering and it doesn't interfere with the job, that generally will be tolerated. Now, this is a step or two up So they that. said that they did try to accommodate his request, right. and here's what they did. They offered to adjust his schedule so he could work after any religious services on a Sunday, told him he should ask others to pick up his shifts. He could do that. At some point, the postmaster was doing deliveries in lieu of him, but didn't want to do that forever. And then finally, they suggested he choose a different day to observe the Sabbath, yeah. which doesn't sound That was bizarre. <laughs> I'll, I'll observe it on Tuesday? Does that even work? Um, this is why the lower court ruled against the postal carrier. They said... The government went above and beyond for you here. Again, it depends. You have to look at all the facts. Those all matter. That's interesting. Uh, Okay, Jessica, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this, look, I would also love to have Sunday work be banned. (laughs) I'm not going to lie about that. But yeah, I mean, it does seem like this was a huge burden on the Postal Service. I don't know where the court's going to come down on this. I mean, we definitely have a pro-business side of the court and we have, of the conservative side of the court, and we have a more kind of religious side of the conservative court. And so it is going to be tricky to see kind of where they come down on this, particularly the the majority conservative side. That's interesting. So you're seeing the tension between the conservatives. Yeah, I would agree with Jessica. I think that's the interesting part is that for I think a conservative position would be we cannot be mandating to business that they have to give this man time off. I mean, it is fundamental Sunday delivery to their operations. On the flip side, it's a religious liberty uh, argument. So there is some tension there. I do worry about the the precedent, though, if they come down on the side of this individual. Of course, you know, Saturdays for the Jewish community, Sundays for many in the Christian Catholic faith, that could put a really undue burden on employers to just suddenly give those days up and say that you have to be able to uh, give people that time off. So I'll be very curious to see where the court comes down. I wonder if it's some kind of a 
nuanced, it depends kind of answer. Though. I didn't even know that you could get mail on Sundays, number one, because <laughs> no, 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 the it's, all, service, it's, it's all Amazon's Amazon. It's Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon, Amazon yeah. is forcing them to, no, not forcing right. them, they're delivering on behalf of Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Right. Listen, I want the Supreme Court to take this up. You know, we were joking about it, you know, <laughs> off there. It's like, if you want to burn it down with your silliness, then go ahead. Let's take it to the next level and suggest but that Americans... But what part is silly? It's silly. The, the silliness to me is pretending as if you can be this republic that is separate from religion while seeing all these rulings that you ask yourself, would this be a case if it weren't for religion? You know, like when it comes to, like, reproductive health, for instance. All the arguments, as far as I can tell stem from a religious perspective. And even the argument with the medications, they're trying to say, well, is it really safe? Well, all the document, all this research says it is. Why are you really bringing this case up? So if you want to have this conversation, go ahead. Because there are tons of religions besides just Christianity, besides Judaism, besides Hinduism. Like Wiccas probably have a whole list of days they can show up and say, it's the solstice. Sorry, can't work this month. That's where it becomes a bit of a slippery slope, though, is I do think, what, so what faith traditions do we have to recognize mm-hmm. as all high holy holidays? It becomes something where you could have employers asking for quite a bit of time off and saying that they have a right under this precedent. And this is, we all revere the Constitution, and, and, but, but we're also allowed to criticize it. <laughs> and in the First Amendment, you know, the first one you learn, it tells us at the same time, we have free, the right to free exercise of religion, but also we don't establish religion. And that leads to situations like this. And again, Justice Jackson gave us the answer, which is... It depends. But what did you think about the tension between the conservatives? What did you hear? That was it's really interesting because it, I don't think this is going to be your straight six to three ruling like we saw in, in the ruling where they allowed a football coach to pray on the field after a game. Straight six conservatives, three liberals. It looked to me like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh in particular were looking for some sort of middle ground. What they may do is raise that bar. Remember we talked about de minimis. They can raise it a little bit. There's various ways you can say substantial burden or something like that. It looks to me like they're find, trying to find a middle ground for once. That's interesting. So in this case, they were saying that it's more than a de minimis um, burden because he was asking other people to work. Yeah, they were, so people would, were transferring, moving schedules. Again, compare it to, let's say, a police officer who wants to wear a turban. Okay, doesn't interfere with the job, no cost, doesn't impose costs on others. That generally, I, it took a little while, but now that should be allowed. Okay, thank you very much. Really helpful. Okay, be sure to tune in at the top of the hour. Some of our top reporters will join me to talk about the big stories what am I talking about? The big <laughs> stories that they're covering. We're going to hear also from Fox News viewers how they feel about that defamation lawsuit with Dominion and when they found out about it. I just wasn't aware that Dominion had uh, filed a, essentially a defamation suit against Fox. So um, when uh, your producer had reached out and said, hey, this this is going on and this is what we'd like you to come on and discuss. Um, You know, I guess I I just sort of looked at it and thought, well, I guess that makes sense. That's at 11. But first, (laughs) is it a good idea to let your kids lose every now and then? Will it make them tougher, more competitive? What if they're four years old? One grandfather thinks so. We'll discuss next. (laughs) All right, should we let little kids win? Or is it a good idea to let them lose? A new opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal is titled, Why I Let My Four-Year-Old Granddaughter Lose. She Needs a Taste of Defeat as Well as Victory to Learn How to Compete in Life. The author, Bob Brody, writes, Granted, losing hurts. 
I've never quite recovered from getting cut in tryouts for my eighth grade basketball team. But losing is also instructive and fortifying. Losing motivates you to bring out your best. Lucia should understand that nobody deserves an award simply for showing up and that nothing makes you want to win more than losing. I've failed over and over again in my life, Michael Jordan says in a commercial, and that is why I succeed. I'm back with my panel. Okay, Mr. Tough Love, Ellie Hunting. <laughs> what do you think about um, your little kids when they were four? I, I would like to share one of my finest parenting moments with you all, if I might. So when my son was two or three, so even younger Uh-oh. than four, um, he loved Candyland, right? And I would always let him win. Now, you're probably wondering, how would you let someone win in Candyland? you just draw cards. The answer is I would just fix the deck. I would just slide the gumdrop. You know, it's not hard when he's two or three. And I would always let him win. And one day I was playing with him, and I got out ahead early. And he was being a brat, and he was sobbing and getting all worked up. And I sort of looked at my wife, and she gave me a look like, finish it. Finish it. <laughs> and I beat him. And when I pulled into the candy castle, he lost it. He had a tantrum, rolling around crying. But you know what? It was a valuable lesson. And I dare say he's now 17, and he has turned out resilient and tough and a good kid. I'm not sure any of us can add to this story. <laughs> that, I think that just says everything about parenting we I, ever need I to know. I was going to say four seemed too young, but apparently it's not too young. <laughs> for, for us, you know, the turning point was actually a pickup basketball game we played. Actually, not too far from here. We were in Brooklyn together. We were at a, a, one of my good friends' house, and we were playing one-on-one. And I beat him, but he came close to blocking my shot. Oh. And at this point, he's a little bit older, and he's, you know, he's tall, and he's athletic, or whatever. And I shot it, I missed my shot. He got the rebound and looked at me, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and we both knew, like, things are changing. <laughs> <laughs> things aren't the same. And I've never played basketball with him since then. I was like, you would never block my shot. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's got to be a wake-up call if you eventually lose to your child. Yeah. I will oh. not be ready for that. <laughs> yeah, neither was I. That's why I've never played with them. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that, that sort of proves the point of things do eventually come around. Like, your ch- your son wouldn't be a brat, a two-year-old brat forever, even if you didn't right. squash him like a grape <laughs> in that game. Yes, you know, you're right. But they do have to learn the lesson. And look, I think sports are a big part of this. Both of my kids are high school athletes. And you have, you know, there's not too many areas now in life, the life of a current teenager, where you get tough news, where you take a mm-hmm. tough beat like you would in a sporting event. I mean, there's a lot of cushioning under these kids now. And so, you know, obviously, look, you don't have to dunk on your six-year-old or anything. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, they need to go through some some stress and some drama to, to be ready to be, be adults. Resilient. I, yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I agree. Go ahead, Jessica. Yeah, I mean, all I'm going to say is I understand that, you know, you want to teach them about losing, but I think that kids do go through really hard things in this life. And I think what I loved about, you know, my own parents is that I always knew that life would get hard, but at home, I was the greatest, I was the best, you know, no one loved me more than they did, no one would build me up more than they did. And I think it made me stronger. So when the tough things did happen, I know I could pick up the phone and there was someone who's going to say that I was great if someone said that I wasn't. And I think that made it so I wasn't afraid to fail. I wasn't afraid to go out and do things because there was always going to be a soft spot to land. See, that's the other philosophy. That's beautiful. That's I love that too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Which is that the family is a foundation, like a yes. warm and cozy foundation because life's going to beat it out of you. Totally. But, they're, but they're not separate, right? They don't yeah, have to yeah, be exactly. mutually you exclusive. Yeah. You can still be the place, like, we don't have participation medals in my house. Yeah. Like, I raised them very early. Like, we don't do that. That's just not how we roll. Either you finish where you earn the medal or we throw that trash away. (laughs) And I've thrown all my participation medals away and he's thrown all his away. 
But it's still a place where you can go and fail and be loved, but it's not a place you can go and be coddled and be told you're the greatest when you sucked. Interesting. You're going to throw away your honorary doctorate when you're awarded it by Harvard? <laughs> I'm going to be like, peace, because I didn't put in the work. Like, when I put my, I will take your honorary when, doctorate. When my awards are, like, I have, like, a little wall with my awards. I worked my ass off for those. It, does it means more. I don't want it, something next to it that says I showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's that? Well done. Great, you guys. Thank you very much. I think we've solved all the parenting problems. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Meanwhile, vaccine skeptic Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is joining the race for the White House. He's running as a Democrat without the support of many of his own family members. So we'll talk about his long shot bid next. Anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. launching a bid for the 2024 Democratic presidential election today. He's already facing a big hurdle. He lacks support from prominent members of his own famous Democratic family. During his speech in Boston, he described himself as a truth teller. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now. <laughs> is threatening now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country. And though he invoked his father and uncle, Kennedy was forced to acknowledge his estrangement from some members of his family over his incendiary rhetoric. Back with me now, Elsie Granderson and Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Okay, Alyssa, your thoughts? Keep an eye on this. So there's a USA Today Suffolk poll that had him at 14%, which I think is incredibly high. I think you hear the name Kennedy and the average voter, push voter voting in this is not even sure which Kennedy to associate it with. Um, Also something to keep an eye on in this, Steve Bannon's been hyping him uh, on his uh, War Room podcast as well as Roger Stone. And is that that a maneuver? I mean, does he really like him or he's trying to just disrupt and blow up I think it's an effort to disrupt and to try to take votes away from, from Joe Biden. And of course, right now he's running as a Democrat, but there's nothing to say that he wouldn't try to run as some kind of a third party challenger in a potential, you know, Trump Biden head to head. Um, not a serious person, but we do know there's an anti-vax sentiment in this country. I'm sure that that will help get him some votes. But I, yeah, it's concerning. <laughs> I'll say. I don't have a problem with anyone deciding they want to run for president, with the exception of the twice, you know, impeached ex-president. Everyone else, <laughs> you know, I don't have a problem with. I do think, though, however, this. What this does do is sort of remind Democrats, if you will, that, you know, President Biden hasn't officially announced yet. And while all things that I've seen in my own personal reporting, plus other reports from other reporters in D.C., is that, by all intents and purposes, he's going to run. But there is this vacuum here. And if you're someone who, you know, not quite sure what to do with your political future and you want to raise up your profile, why not run for president? I mean, did Beto O'Rourke really have a chance of being president? No, of course not. But it kept his issues out there and the things that he was concerned with. It kept those conversations going because he was running for president. So if, if Mr. Kennedy is really serious as an anti-vaxxer, this allows him a platform running for president to continue to push those views. I do worry that we're going to have candidates on both the right and the left, though, who are running on such extreme platforms. I mean, he represents something 
something that, especially in a post-pandemic era, I think is wildly dangerous, some of the things that he's espoused. And on, on the right, we've seen some extreme positions being taken. Um, I'm hoping we see both fields consolidate quickly. And I do think it's incumbent on the president to announce sooner rather than later. But I mean, are you saying that you think that if Joe Biden announced that he is running for re-election, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. wouldn't get in? No, I'm just saying there's a vacuum right now. There's no movement in terms of 2024 in terms of a Democrat, right? This is actually the first time you've heard someone running as a Democrat for 2024, right? So this is like, oh, that's right. We do need to gear up for the primaries. We do need to do these things. And while I don't expect uh, President Biden to find himself being primary by established Democrats, it is important to continue to have these conversations that are outside the sphere of liberalism in order to push agendas or policies forward for the real debates, Right. Because eventually, at some point, someone's going to talk about covid. Someone's going to talk about vaccines and you got to have answers. And this is good batting practice. It's really interesting to hear what you say, that name recognition gets you that far already. You have to imagine. I mean, just when I saw that poll, that's got to be the fact that his last name's Kennedy and that people are like, which one is it? I'm not totally sure. <laughs> and he's got is the it, same yeah, name. Is it Joe Kennedy, <laughs> right. who great moderate former member in the House? Um, I think there's an element of confusion there. He does have kind of a cult-like following, similar to when Marianne Williamson, where there are people who will kind of follow them, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of the, the viability of the campaign. But to get him to that sort of a number seems surprisingly high to me. Alyssa, LZ, thank you both. Great to see you guys. All right, coming up, Fox viewers tell us what they think about the network's big settlement with Dominion and if it's impacted their view of the network. Some of our favorite reporters will be here momentarily to talk about the stories that they are working on for tomorrow. That's next. Great to have you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. Here with me tonight, we have Sarah Fisher, Jessica Dean, Omar Jimenez, and Elena Treen. Great to have all of you. But I want to start with what's next for Fox. In the wake of that $787 million settlement in the Dominion defamation lawsuit, Fox has to write that big check, but it does not have to issue a correction on air for its viewers. But now the network faces another major lawsuit that could cost them even more. Smartmatic, which is another voting tech company, is seeking $2.7 billion in damages. So, Sarah, you've been covering this for a long time. What's next? So Fox put out a statement today that they expect this to be litigated in 2025. So there's still a lot of time. Why so long? Well, because legal processes take a long time. You have to go through a bunch of pretrial depositions, hearings, all of that kind of stuff. This trial also will be held in New York, different from the Dominion trial, which was held in Delaware. New York tends to move a little bit slower in terms of their legal system, so that could be part of the holdup. But this is going to be a huge case for Fox. And a lot of us were watching the outcome of the Dominion case because it has big implications for how Fox is going to litigate the Smartmatic case. But another thing to note, that that's not the only lawsuit that they face. You'll recall they face a lawsuit from one of their former producers, She is suing the company, alleging that Fox tried to sort of meddle with her testimony pre-trial. And then in addition to Fox, you have a slew of other companies that Dominion is actually suing. So Dominion's lawyer yesterday, who appeared on CNN, Justin Nelson, said that it's not just Fox. They have lawsuits out against Newsmax, One American News, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. There's a whole slew of them. And so for the next year or two, we're going to be seeing a ton of litigation come out around the 2020 election lies. And it's just amazing to think that it's had such an impact still today that we're talking about this and litigating it. Mm -hmm. 
So I had this great opportunity this afternoon to sit down with four, um, I would call them dedicated Fox viewers. They watch virtually every night whenever they can, they said. But they said that they also get their news from other a variety of other sources. But they really do like some of Fox's primetime programs. And I got to talk to them about, you know, this lawsuit and if it changes their mind and what they think about Fox settling. So here's a piece of that. Show of hands, how many of you had heard about this two-year legal battle between Dominion and Fox before our producer called you? Two of you had heard about it, and two of you... Uh, Lee. Okay, so tell me about that. I would say it wasn't a surprise uh, when I heard about it. It's just that I hadn't, I hadn't heard about it. Um, I, you know, I was aware... Um, of the claims that it made against Dominion and, and you know, the allegations of voter fraud more broadly. I just wasn't aware that Dominion had uh, filed a, essentially a defamation suit against Fox. So um, when uh, your producer had reached out and said, hey, this, this is going on and this is what we'd like you to come on and discuss, um, you know, I guess I, I just sort of looked at it and thought, well, I guess that makes sense. You know, what I came away from the court filing with was a lot of this is a matter of opinion. We've seen things for the last several years, uh, I would say going back to 2016, um, there's a certain level of willful blindness, but people see what they want to see. And that's true on the left and it's true on the right. Um, and, and we just, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit holes, but you know, with the Trump-Russia dossier, with the Hunter Biden laptop, with COVID policy and reaction, people see what they want to see. And, you know, I don't begrudge. I mean, look, like I've seen things on your network. I've seen things on MSNBC that I take extreme issue with. But I don't look to any of the networks, including Fox, as the ultimate arbiter of truth. Shelby, let me let me get to you. I mean, when you hear that, you know, Carlson and Laura Ingram and Sean Hendy saying, I didn't believe any of it, but they were still putting it on. Do, as a viewer, what does that make you feel? Well, I, I lost, I'd lost trust in them prior to that. Um, anyway, when, when uh, Fox was calling out the election, I know a lot of people felt this way. They were calling out the election prematurely for Arizona. And then after that, you know, there's been a lot of talking out both sides of their mouth. I think they're going to learn a lesson. This ha- this lesson has to happen to cost them $787 million, which is a number I can't hardly imagine. But and what is that lesson, Ryan? It, I, I mean, but, but what is that lesson? Well, I think that lesson is that um, the news is, should be based wholly on truth. And I understand that you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox are all going to shade that truth in one way or the other. And there's a value to that. But there also is a line to be crossed. I know this, we're talking about Fox not being uh, forthright. I don't believe they were forthright. I think it was about getting views. And I think that's what all media does. I think just a lot of the American citizens have woken up and they've decided if we're going to find out what's going on and we want the real facts, we're going to have to find them ourselves. The audience is not looking to be lied to. It's looking to give context to something that we know is true from a, a certain perspective. And that's that's got a value. But there is a line not to cross. And once you know that something is not true, you need to let them know. 
So I'm going to have a lot more of that tomorrow. We'll, we'll play much more of that interview. But I just, it's so instructive for me when I talk to um, these folks. And I really appreciate them coming on. Because basically what I heard them saying was, we all seek confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. We know that we're in different echo chambers. We go to, to we go seeking what we want to hear back. But even with that, even if we accept that there's bias, we want to be told the truth. Yeah, right. It, it, it is really fascinating to hear them talk about this. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found them? Because well, they're not CNN viewers. They're obviously. not CNN viewers. I mean, but I mean, obviously, all of us know. Yes. Um, people who are very dedicated to Fox and we know people in our maybe even our own families and everything. So it's not hard to find, totally. but it is hard to find people who were willing to come on. I mean, one of the reasons we want to talk to them was to find out, did they know about it? Uh-huh. And the truth is they may have heard about it, but they didn't hadn't done a deep dive. They certainly didn't hear about it on Fox. They didn't know much about the Dominion lawsuit until our producer sent them the court documents, sent them some Wall Street Journal articles. And then they read it and got back to her and were you know, they were, I mean, I don't want to say gobsmacked, but they were, they had to read through the documents and it gave them pause. And now they've had a few days to marinate on it and talk to us about it. I mean, it. I respect them for, for doing that, Me for too. coming on, for talking to you. Um, yeah. And I think, look, it, it's always good when you're willing to open your mind and read other things. And, you know, it, it's all it's all there. And, and I think at the heart of it, and you've talked about this so much, we know that they're not going to have to apologize the hosts. Or but, correct. Or, or correct. Or correct. falsehoods. But they, they lied to their viewers, just well, truly lied, which is... But these people think everybody lies. That's the key takeaway. And we're at a time, if you take a look at polls from Gallup, from Pew, that trust in media is at an all-time low. My biggest takeaway is what can we do as the journalists in the room to regain some of that trust? Because clearly there's a trust gap that needs to be addressed. Well, Mm -hmm. and there's one thing, too, that I think, especially with the way a lot of people see these stories is online, through social media, through whatever it may be. And we're all sort of trapped in our own algorithms. If you've been on TikTok, if you've been on Twitter for you, whatever it might be, you are getting a reflection of of what you're interested in. And that's no fault of your own. They're feeding you. Totally. Exactly. And so even with this, obviously, we're very locked into this. Even some of these viewers themselves, you know, they're trying to, to deal with it after being essentially approached with this information outside of the algorithm that they may have had, for a majority of of folks, they might know that this happened. But if that apology, if that transparency isn't pushed through those same channels with the same ferocity and and, uh, magnitude that what they got before was, then I I don't know how much is actually changing in their minds outside of the legal venue, which, of course, is is incredibly important. Great point. I mean, I found that out. Right. And I also think it's going to take a lot of time. I mean, it is disheartening to hear people saying we just assume that the media stretches the truth, distorts facts. And we regardless of of what network or where you're reading it, that's just the assumption. And I think that is something that we've obviously seen, as Sarah pointed out, increase uh, exponentially, excuse me, exceptionally over the last uh, several years. And I don't know what the answer is to gaining back that trust. I mean, I know that CNN is very committed, obviously, to doing really good fact-based journalism. Um, I know Axios, where Sarah works, is committed to the same thing, my former employers. And at the same time, though, I think that those are also, like, people just view no matter what it is. And I think it's going to be really difficult to gain back that trust. No, I agree. That was... um 
eye-opening mm-hmm. and disheartening to hear them talk about that. One of the things that I realized is that, you know, unless you take a journalism class in college or high school, you don't really know the tenets of journalism and that the, there are rules and how much we have to adhere to those rules at CNN and how, you know, committed we are to that. And so they do paint with a broad brushstroke because they call it the media. Right. We call it the press. Yes, and this is a key point. You talk to any academic about what we can do to rebuild trust, and the answer is transparency. Explain to your viewers, explain to your readers how you got to this information. Don't use as many uh, anonymous sources. Explain, if you can, describe who those sources are. Are they a senior official? Is it somebody in the room? Explain what a dateline means. This was jarring to me. If you ask young people who's really good at news, a lot of times they say Vice because they can visually see, and Vice does great news, they can visually see that they're out in the field, right? But if you're reading the New York Times, you don't know that somebody is out in the field just because it says Bangkok before the first paragraph. So we need to do a better job of explaining, especially to the new generation, what our ethics are, what our policies are. And if we can do that, we can rebuild trust for sure. But you mentioned a good point. Fox is not required as a part of the settlement to issue a correction. And, you know, the thing about it is viewers don't care if you get things wrong. They don't. They understand that you're human. Same thing with readers. Same thing with any person who's a news consumer. But in order to gain trust, you have to be honest with them. When you get something wrong, you have to show up, you have to correct it, and you have to own it. And that's not going to happen in this situation. Yeah, that's uh, that's such a great point. And obviously, none of them like being duped. Nobody, nobody likes being duped or no. feeling that they're duped. But... Um, I mean, I'll just spoiler alert for tomorrow because we'll have much more for tomorrow. <laughs> but basically the, my, the ending was I said, will you still watch Fox? And three of them said, yes, they would, because mm-hmm. they're still getting what they want. Mm-hmm. That's a product that they like. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, there there it is. We were wondering about that just last night, you know. Um, stay with me, everybody, because the homeowner accused of shooting 16-year-old Ralph Yarl after he rang the wrong doorbell in Kansas City pleaded not guilty today. Omar has been covering this story for us. And we'll tell, uh, he'll tell us what the next legal strategy is in this case. A new photo out today shows 16-year-old Ralph Yarl home and recovering. Almost a week after the Kansas City teenager was shot in the head, allegedly by an 84-year-old homeowner after ringing the wrong doorbell. Andrew Lester, the suspect, pleading not guilty in court today. He's currently out on $200,000 bond. Omar Jimenez has been covering this story for us. So, Omar, what have you been learning? Well, you, you said the latest that he pleaded not guilty. So he, he's out on bail. Uh, but that, that's part of the thing that's, that's enraging for some people, that obviously this happens. It's a reality of our legal system that he paid his bail. He, he's at home. He's, uh, he's okay. There are conditions, you know, passport revoked, can't leave the state, that sort of thing. But on the other side, Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old who was actually shot, uh, he has made a lot of great strides. You saw him in that picture there, that he actually is awake, having conversations. It's a, I mean, it's just a miracle. No, it's was, incredible. It's, it's yeah. a miracle. It's, and I'm so miracle. glad. I'm so uh, We're also glad. I was talking to, you know, Lee Merritt, one of the attorneys. Yeah. He was shot in the head yeah. less than a week ago. And his family said if if the bullet was just a few inches uh. one way or another, we wouldn't be, we would be talking about you all in the past tense at this point. So they, they feel very thankful that he is at this point. But obviously it's a really long road to go, both physically and and mentally, and we heard that from none other than than his mom, who spoke about it uh, a little bit earlier. Take a listen. 
He's able to communicate mostly when he feels like it, but mostly he just sits there and stares and the buckets of tears just rolls down his eyes. You can see that he's just replaying the situation over and over again. It's hard to imagine, but you can't imagine what, what, what that's like. I didn't and, expect her to say that. Yeah. I mean, we thought from that smiling photo, well, he's recovered. That's yeah. fantastic. Great. It's a miracle. Yeah. So I didn't expect her to t- say that he's just crying. Well, of tears. and it's part of why, obviously, he's surrounded by a lot of medical professionals right now recovering uh, at home. But it's why they've made an effort to to lock down a psychologist and a therapist, because they know that it's he's going to have a tough time processing this. And I think... Um, for any 16-year-old, it's, it's tough to process the world around you. And then the, when the world comes at you in the way that it did right here, I, I think it's really going to be a, a long journey ahead for him. How's the community responding to this? Because obviously we've seen in other apparently unwarranted shootings, yeah. um, there's often a lot of community unrest. So what's happening there? Well, a lot of them have, have gotten behind him. I mean, his school in particular, they organized a unity walk where over a thousand of the students and, and folks were out on the street. Over $3 million have been raised for his GoFundMe. You can see some of the folks that have been out walking. So it seems like they've really tried to send the message that this is not okay in our community, that we don't stand behind this regardless uh, of any race, regardless of age, whatever it may have been. Um, and in regards to the shooting itself, I mean, the the uh, the homeowner has said that he thought or he was scared to death of the person who was on his front steps. Now, obviously, we're talking about a black 16-year-old male. Um, and that has a lot of connotations that, that people take very seriously. And this part of Kansas City, just for context, is, is a little bit wider than the uh, lower county of Kansas City. So in theory, this could be a situation where they're not seeing as many black people. This is an older gentleman. And so the district attorney or the county attorney has said that he believes race was a factor here. The mayor has said that he believes racial profiling was a factor here. And so these are all things that are now going to be investigated because clearly the way it looks is not good. Right. And, you know, I hear you talking about the therapist and, and what they're doing, the buck, you know, what you were just saying about the mother saying the bucket of tears. And it just reminds you that, like, these things happen and we keep seeing all of these shootings and especially these mistaken identity, whatever we want to call these horrific shootings. And, and we kind of go, oh, OK, he's OK now. OK, the trauma that you carry around from that, that I can only imagine how heavy that is. And it just, you know, I was thinking about it today. Like, how do you ever begin to make that right for somebody like Ralph Yarl? He's 16 years old, has just nothing but runway ahead of him. And, and now he's just traumatized. Yeah. And you almost, you, you think to yourself, like, uh, obviously it's, it's processing it mentally, but when you go back to doing some of those things, those interactions, again, maybe an interaction similar to how this one began, knocking on someone's door, right. not knowing who is going to open that door. And in this case, uh, this homeowner told investigators there were no words exchanged before this right. shooting. So the only interaction he got after ringing that doorbell were, were, were bullets through a glass door. Right. And how many times... Is he going to approach a door in his life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the idea that this that event is triggering, no pun intended, that he's going to approach a door and it's going to be brought back. I also heard his mother say, I think it was his mother, that he has to look, at, he will have to look at the wound. He will be reminded every time he looks in the mirror of that event because he will carry the hole or the scar in his head. So horrifying. And it's also horrifying 
I mean, to just put into context the other shootings we saw this week of yeah. uh, the woman who was with her friends and her car pulled into the wrong driveway or the cheerleader whose friend opened the door and got she was getting into the wrong car. I mean, it's crazy to me. And it reminds me, I mean, we were I was on this panel last week with you. And we were talking about the mass shootings and all the gun violence that has been happening. And these three cases, I mean, all very young people, 20, 16, 18, um, their whole lives ahead of them. And these are very personal shootings. It's horrific. And it's it's hard because I feel like America is getting so numb every week. There's more on Saturday. I was listening earlier that there were 17 mass shootings on Saturday alone in the United States. It's crazy. Um, and yeah. it's hard to know. I mean, I know just from covering politics, Congress, you know, everyone's saying we have to have more laws. We have to have more laws on this. And Right now, there's just not, because of the divide in our politics, the divisions in America right now, it, there's just no middle ground to reach on it. And it's really disheartening. And I think, jumping off that, when, when we talk about, I think, gun violence as a society, I think we tend to think mass shooters, uh, criminal gang activity, whatever it may be. But I think what we're seeing in these cases is that there is another reality to this, where there are people who are mistaking identities. There are people who may be a little trigger happy. There are people who are scared, maybe because they are internalizing what they may be consuming in their algorithms and on television. Um, and there are also domestic disputes where, of course, firearms are involved as well. And so I think that as much as we talk about mass shooters and, and crime in, in major cities in this country, I think this is an aspect that we need to, to think about, that there is this, this culture within America that shoot first, we ask questions later. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what these three yeah. Uh, the bucket that these three fit into. And Sarah, it was interesting. In the last hour, we had John Miller, our phenomenal law enforcement expert on, and he was saying that he sees this in three buckets, the mass shootings, school shootings, the everyday gun violence, and now this trigger happy, whatever you want to call it, hair trigger, because people are scared and are firing before they ask questions. And that they, they probably all have different reasons, and we have to have a multi-pronged approach. Yeah, and I think that when these things happen in clusters, our society's response is to draw a thread line so that we can make sense of it. This past week, we had three incidents, Elena described, all young people who did absolutely nothing wrong, wrong place, wrong time, trigger happy, and serious consequences. And so this is the thread that we're you know, dealing with this week. Last week, it was mass shootings. Mm -hmm. Next week, it might be school shootings. I mean, I feel like every week, every few months, we're dealing with how do we mentally wrap our heads around what we're witnessing? And I think, you know, at Axios, we do this summary at the end of every year of the news cycle. You have to look at it from a day, week, month, year, tenure perspective all the time to understand how these trends work. Because for today, we're talking about the trigger-happy, innocent kids. Tomorrow, we might be talking about domestic disputes. I'd love to see the data and talk like on the show about the data of what does this look like over the course of two years? Mm. Do we find that these types of trigger-happy shootings are happening more and more? It could be the case. And if that's the case, our conversation needs to shift right. to more about racial tensions in America, to more about gun access in America, not just AK-47s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you all very much for that conversation. Meanwhile... Florida Governor Ron DeSantis appears to be preparing to battle Donald Trump for the 2024 Republican nomination. But so far, Donald Trump has the upper hand on Capitol Hill endorsements. So up next, Elena lays out the GOP landscape. <laughs> Florida.
Florida governor and potential 2024 hopeful Ron DeSantis. His trip to D.C. may not have gone exactly as he planned. He's trying to shore up support, but so far is fail- falling a little short. Alana Train was covering the DeSantis event last night and is here to fill us in. So what did the folks there, what was their reaction to him? So... This event was really DeSantis. It was viewed very widely, especially by people in the room, as an early kickoff event for his expected presidential campaign. Um, And a lot of these people were conservative leaders and Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill. And they had a great reception of him. I mean, I think they said he's a great governor. He touted what he's been doing in Florida. Uh, But they are being very careful not to endorse him. And I think that's something that's been really interesting to watch over the last few days because this was, again, was an event for him to come reconnect with members that he used to know, former colleagues of his in the House. DeSantis was a House member previously. Um, And a lot of people coming in and out were saying, I don't want to talk about who I'm going to endorse in 2024. He's a great guy, but we'll see what the field looks like. And a lot of them even admitted more privately that they are afraid that if they come out for someone like DeSantis now, they'll see the vengeance of Donald Trump Mm -hmm. later on. And around this event, the thing that I found that was fascinating was the Trump campaign saw this event and completely outmaneuvered Governor DeSantis. I mean, they knew that he was looking to gain a lot of support, maybe secure some endorsements. And instead, a lot of people from DeSantis's backyard, Trump's as well, both at their home turf, went out and DeSant- uh, excuse me, went out and endorsed Donald Trump in the 24 hours before and after this DeSantis event. I mean, one lawmaker, Lance Gooden, came out and left as he was leaving the DeSantis event, tweeted that he was endorsing Donald Trump. So it was a really interesting thing to watch. And I think it also just showed um, how specifically Trump's campaign is trying to focus in on this, strategize on this, and really is focused on trying to throw DeSantis off guard and take the wind out of his sails. So to be clear, it's not that they're waiting for more information or that they're waiting to endorse. They're choosing to endorse Trump right now. Yeah, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of these people, yes, yes. And some of it, this reporting that I have, I spoke with a lot of people uh, close to Donald Trump, people on his campaign about this, and they were saying... Really, a lot of it is the strategy. Donald Trump calls all of these lawmakers all the time. He's endorsed many of them previously, helped them get elected. And anytime that someone is about to endorse Donald Trump, he gets on the phone with them and talks them again right before their endorsement. So Trump has a very personal touch with this. DeSantis, meanwhile, I spoke to many members on Capitol Hill, people like uh, Tim Burchett, uh, Greg Stubbe. They both were saying that they've never heard from DeSantis. They've been trying to get in contact with his campaign for months and they have not been able to get the governor on the phone. Recently, however, his aides have been reaching out to people, a lot of these Republicans, and trying to get them uh, to potentially secure an endorsement. And that turned a lot of people off. You know, it, okay, it's so interesting because for we, Elaine and I are both on Capitol Hill and in D.C., Sarah's in D.C. too, and it can be so easy to kind of get sucked in, right, to this but where it's like, who endorsed who? And whatever. And then if you zoom out, and, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, like zoom out and remember Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire. What is What are people there hearing? What are they reading? Who are they listening to? Is it these lawmakers from Florida? It is certainly a coup for Donald Trump in the sense that like it was it was good strategy, right? Like that it, it made a big splash on the day when it throws him off his game, to Elena's point. Uh, but what I'm curious about is what does it mean in the broader context? And do these endorsements actually matter in the long run, short of just like ticking off kind of a 
you know, we won on this round kind of thing. Because, um, you know, again, like if you go through and think about all the endorsements we've seen in the past, let's say, two cycles, you know, the only one that kind of sticks out to me right now is, is Jim Clyburn. We're, when you know in South Carolina, we're made a real difference. We're really tipped the scales. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm hearing you say is that it's a stylistic difference, yeah. and Donald Trump wins that stylistic difference. He is a natural-born extrovert. Yes. Yeah. And he loves working the phone. I'm sure you've all been on receiving calls of his, as have I. And he loves the phone, <laughs> and he likes having these phone conversations. Mm-hmm. And that might um, be the secret sauce to well, getting these. And I was going to say, as, as the uh, non-DCer up here, um, <laughs> I feel like one, one thing that I, that I think about is that very clearly all roads to the GOP nomination seem to go through Trump right now. And that was, that was a big question, obviously, coming in. How much support would he be able to get? Obviously, he's facing indictment. He's got investigations in multiple jurisdictions. How would that affect things? Seems like to this point, he's been able to fundraise off of that. He's been able to use that politically. And the, the announcement of Nikki Haley was drowned out in many ways by all the headlines that Trump's been generating. Ron DeSantis hasn't announced, but obviously still trying to make some national political inroads. And that seems to have been drowned out by Trump. And so no matter who tries to push through in the field as we get closer to 2024, which is uh, going to come fast, um, I, I think it's, it's clear right now that whoever pushes through is going to have to push through Trump and not be able to go around. Right. It is a key thing mm-hmm. that I know the other campaigns. I mean, the big question is, how do you define yourself apart from Donald Trump? So many of their policies are similar to Trump's policies when he was in the White House. Um, and the other key thing that I did pick up on that I just want to mention is that so many of these people are afraid that if they don't endorse Donald Trump, or if they come out for another candidate, that it could be, we've seen this in the past, that they get roasted by Donald Trump and his campaign. And and I did talk to some of these members who said, you know, if we endorse Trump now and then DeSantis or someone else wins the nomination, we have to switch support. That's probably the safer move than going out for someone like Ron DeSantis and supporting him. And then Donald Trump becomes a nominee and you have to deal with that fallout. And that's definitely something that's weighing very heavily on members' minds. Commercially, Elena, Donald Trump, obviously he has big donors, but he's been able to get a ton of small dollar fundraising, in part because he gets how to speak to people, like Allison was saying. He knows how to work it on Facebook. He's back on Facebook and YouTube. Does Ron DeSantis have that? Is he going to be able to fundraise and make a ton of money off of everyday people? Is he going to rely more on some of the rich donors now that are living in Palm Beach, Trump's turf? Like, Mm -hmm. what's going to be his strategy to being able to compete with Trump financially? Right. Well, he does have a massive war chest. I know that when we were going through the first quarter uh, fundraising numbers, he has about $110 million from his various committees that support him. Um, But he does have a lot of these big wealthy donors as well who are supporting him. A lot of, I mean, some of the donors who previously were for Trump are actually now leaving Trump and going for DeSantis, which has been very interesting to watch. But you make a really good point, Sarah, and it's true that Ron DeSantis is notoriously bad at retail politicking, and he doesn't have that charm that people describe Donald Trump as. And it could potentially, I mean, especially when it comes to small dollar donations, it's going to be interesting to see how that could affect him Mm -hmm. on the money front. Thank you for all of that reporting. Really interesting. Okay, now to this. Friday night at midnight Eastern, that is the deadline that the Supreme Court has given itself to decide if it will rule on that lower court decision imposing restrictions on access to that abortion medication. And Jessica's going to fill us in on that next. It's so counterintuitive. 
The Supreme Court needs more time to consider a lower court decision restricting access to an abortion drug. Today, Justice Samuel Alito extended the hold on that lower court ruling until 11.59 Eastern Friday night. That gives the justices 48 more hours to consider this case while temporarily extending access to this drug. So Jessica's been following all these developments. What's going to happen tomorrow? Well, tomorrow we're going to wait. We're going to wait and see if they issue a ruling or it could come, you know, 1159 on Friday is now the deadline. They could also extend a stay again. And I think what's important is as soon as you hear that they've extended this stay, you start to think, what what does this mean? You try to read the tea leaves. It could mean a lot of things. The bottom line is they wanted more time to dig into this um, before they made their decision. And again, just to remind everyone at issue here is, uh, do they uphold this ruling from this Texas judge that would uh, severely limit access um, and to this abortion pill that has been on the market now for two decades and it overturns this FDA um, ruling on this, that it's a safe and effective drug? And if they do that and overturn the FDA's rule, the FDA, It has, I understand, all sorts of implications. Like what? Like, I mean, well, think about it. The FDA, right, we we rely on them for so many things to be the arbiter of what is safe and effective for medicine and all all the way down the line, right? So if one judge can overrule the FDA, and remember, to uh, make their assessment, they're looking at all of this data. They're looking at scientific evidence. They're running, you know, they're taking in tests. So what does that mean? We, we don't really, it's a great question because it is pretty unprecedented for one judge to overrule the FDA, an agency like that. Yeah. It's amazing too, because as an everyday person, you hear all these headlines about different things happening with the abortion debate. Okay, this state is outlawing this procedure. This state is outlawing this medicine. As a regular everyday person, it must be very confusing if you're in America to figure out what the lay of the law is because it's so different every day and in every state. Like, what would you advise somebody who's trying to figure out what type of procedure they can or can't get? Where do they get the information? Right. I mean, I think, and it is, it's so state by state, right? And so it depends on where you are. We have like the federal laws, like this is obviously in the federal court now, but then you have different states. You know, we just saw Ron DeSantis sign in the six-week abortion bill in Florida. That's going to be different than it would be in, say, Connecticut or and go and you go on and on and on. So you really need to look at state-specific resources to figure out what is allowed within your state. Right. And then there were those dueling, on the same night, those dueling judge decisions, Washington State and Texas, right. which was also very confusing to people. So, right, Elena, right. I know that you've been reporting on this, that it's it's this is one of these strange disconnects that the American people feel differently than the, their Republican elected leaders. A hundred percent. And this has been the issue really ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade last year, ever since the Dobb decisions. Republicans have not been able to figure out how they're going to message on this. It's been a very difficult path for them to navigate. Um, And I know, I mean, take Donald Trump. Donald Trump is someone, um, I covered him throughout 2016 and into his 2020 campaign. And during 2016, one of the key reasons conservatives, evangelical voters, rallied around him and supported him was because of his stance on abortion. This time, now, uh, knowing that abortion is not the most popular issue in the country and it's not faring as well with many voters. Um, His campaign, I know, has been telling him to back away from that issue and not to talk as much about abortion. We've seen him be 
virtually silent on the issue, uh, whereas previously he's been very, very vocal. And that's something that Republicans across the board are trying to figure out how they're going to navigate. Yeah, I mean, it is out of line. The, the polling on this is very out of, of Americans is very out of line of uh, with what we're seeing from the overturning of Roe v. Wade to uh, this ruling from Texas. And it's interesting you say that, Elena. I covered the Pennsylvania Senate race. And I remember I was in Bucks County, which is a key suburban county around Philadelphia. And I was talking to women there kind of all ages. It It's pretty purple, um, but, cons- but used to be red. And woman after woman after woman was abortion, abortion, abortion. I'm a single issue voter. And I found that really, I was actually genuinely surprised by that. I didn't know, it, it's, it, it's hard for issues to really cut through actually out there. I mean, you know, Omar, you were covering yeah. the midterms. I, I was going to say, in Wisconsin and Michigan, we were seeing the same thing. And in Michigan, abortion was quite literally on the ballot. Yeah. It, it was they were it was put to the voters, mm-hmm. and they, they voted it through. In Wisconsin, it was, it was a major issue as well, more figuratively on the ballot, uh, worried that the state would revert back to its 1849 abortion law, which it's under right now. But we've still seen momentum from this discussion, where just recently uh, we had a Supreme Court judge in Wisconsin, uh, Janet Pro to say wits. I'm practicing her name. You will done. You know, she, she, a Democratic state Supreme Court judge won that seat there, which is important because after the fall of Roe v. Wade, Wisconsin reverted back to, again, that 19th century abortion law, which is now being challenged in the courts. And so now people look there and say, well, this actually bodes well for, for Democrats or for those, for abortion supporters, because mm-hmm. now this is a chance to actually make a statement, uh, legally in this state and set a very important precedent at the state level. But to the point you all were making, that's just another fragment in what seems to be a fragmented country in far, as far as what you can do, yeah. what you can't do. Yeah. And can I just make one more point, too, about this, this abortion drug? I was reading that we, we had a, a piece that I was reading on CNN.com, and, and studies have shown it is, it is safer than Viagra, than penicillin, I mean, drugs that are very, very common. Yeah. So it's worth kind of putting that into perspective. Look, there yeah. it is right there. I wonder Here's why the, the Texas judge isn't banning Viagra. Well, <laughs> so, well more on that later. Um, but thank you. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on all of this, as you point out, because it's so important and it's happening in the next 48 hours. Okay, up next, on the lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. Our fantastic panel of reporters are going to tell us now what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Jessica, what? We talked a lot about the Republican 2024. And look, Biden still hasn't announced his his reelection. You know, all signs point to yes, but no formal announcement yet. And what we did learn today is that a group of his biggest donors are headed to the White House next week. And it's not a formal event, uh, but that they're just kind of gathering them on this four-year anniversary of when he launched his original campaign in 2020. 20. Um, and again, you know, that's kind of the other thing. I feel like in D.C. it's always like, when's he going to announce? Is he actually running? And so here, here's a little mark on the, here's a little data for everyone. That's pretty yeah, good because point. it's the anniversary and all the mega donors are going to be there. That seems like it could mm-hmm. be something a good, to watch. something to watch. Yes. Excellent. Uh-huh. Okay, Elena, what are you watching? UFOs. Ooh, <laughs> yes. Um, I know it's a really sexy headline, but <laughs> unfortunately on its face, it's not, I mean, 
when you peel back the curtain, there's been a briefing, and, and I know the Pentagon is looking into this, as well as Congress, which wants to do oversight. Um, but the Pentagon has found more than 650 UFOs that they are tracking. And um, unfortunately, again, it's not as sexy, but they haven't found any signs of alien activity. It's really all about monitoring what China and Russia and other foreign adversaries and other foreign countries uh, might be doing, and particularly as it relates to emerging foreign technologies. And so the Pentagon has been tracking this, and Congress is really eager to learn more about this. And the interesting thing that I I heard, there was a, a briefing and hearing today on Capitol Hill on this, and they had one recently last year, and last year's was the first in several years that they've done any sort of hearing on UFOs. And so clearly uh, a lot of interest in ramping up into wanting to know what's in the air and what the Pentagon and the U.S. is doing to track these things. I like that you're apologizing for no alien activity. I know. Well, I feel like you hear UFOs and you get excited. You really wanted to be able to deliver. Unfortunately, (laughs) no aliens that, at least that they know of. All right, got it. Uh, Okay, Sarah, tell us. I mean, it's hard to beat UFOs, (laughs) but I might be able to do it because we're talking about Drake. So in the past few days, a new song that sounds like it's from Drake and The Weeknd has racked up a bajillion views on TikTok, on YouTube, on Spotify. But there's just one problem. It's not real. Drake did not do this song. The Weeknd did not do this song. Artificial Intelligence created this song. So Universal Music Group has urged these tech platforms to pull it down, arguing it's a copyright violation. The problem is copyright law in the U.S., only protects human works. And so this is not like their song that's been spoofed by AI. It's a completely new song. And so these are the types of questions that we're all grappling with as AI gets introduced into our daily lives. It's not just the music industry, but it's news, it's art, it's everything. And Mm -hmm. it's getting out ahead of the laws and ahead of the ethics, as you point out, really And I heard that song, and I'm I'm almost sad to say it it was good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you said it. He's one of those many. Yeah, I'm actually keeping an eye on it. It's a battle between uh, a state government and a local government down in Mississippi. So bottom line, it is Jackson, Mississippi is a majority black, majority Democratic city. Mm -hmm. The state of Mississippi, legislature, majority white, majority Republican. Jackson has a public safety issue, and they have for a long time. In 2021, their murder rate was 12 times above the national average. And so everybody agrees something has to be done. We have to change something. The issue is that the state legislature put forward their own plan overruling all of the locally elected leaders because the state leaders said, you know what, we work here, we think Jackson should be safer, we're going to put forward this plan. So supporters are like, yes, we need this. We need a safe capital city. Critics say, sure, this might work, but we have all these locally elected leaders for a reason. And one, they are almost a complete opposite of who you are. And so you are trouncing on our representation to impose something that you think we can't handle for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Thank you for alerting us to that. That's great. Thanks to all of you. This was really great. And tomorrow on CNN This Morning, you'll hear from the grandson of the 84-year-old man charged in the shooting of that Kansas City teenager, Ralph Yarl. That starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Make sure to tune in to that. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.